So in the month of April, we've been <clears throat> looking at our, yeah, just how powerful an intervention in our lives that wisdom is. And it's useful, you know, we do a lot of things in our Buddhist practice. We try to be generous and kind and care about non-harming and we develop all kinds of mental muscles like to concentrate the mind and return to the present moment. But in a way, all of those strategies are in the service of the most impactful in intervention, which is this shift in understanding. And if it was just as easy as the Buddha telling us, okay, shift your understanding this way, you know, stop taking things so personally, and boom, we did it, and then we'd be done. But it doesn't work that way. The shift in understanding is a natural process. It depends on some appropriate or supportive causes and conditions. What is it that shifts our understanding so that our understanding is in alignment with the way it is? One of the articles I linked to in the Sunday resources that Jessica has been pasting there so you can <clears throat> take a look at there are a number of articles that we've put out there for uh, during the month of April related to the talks this month. And today I put an uh, article about um, the weight of mountains. And Tanisaro Bhikkhu is a Western Buddhist monk is talking about one of his teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Suwat, and how he said, you know, mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. And this is a really powerful simile. You can use this because it has a sense of humor built in. You know, later today, when your to-do list feels like an overwhelming burden or some difficult conversation feels like way too much, I can't do this, then just, uh, just see if you can bring that shift of attitude. Okay, so I, I do have some responsibilities, duties here. But evidently, the Buddhist teachings say, these duties and responsibilities, this thing I have to do in my life, it's only heavy if I try to own it, or lift it, or make it me or mine. So how can I be a human being? Does it mean that we don't have duties and responsibilities? So here's just a little section from the article, and remember, this is linked to in the Sunday resources, so you can check it out if you want to read the whole article. Is a mountain heavy? It may be heavy in and of itself, but as long as we don't try to lift it up, it won't be heavy for us. This is a metaphor that one of my teachers, Ajahn Suwad, often used when explaining how to stop suffering from the problems of life. You don't deny their existence. The mountains are heavy and you don't run away from them. As he would further explain, you deal with problems where you have to and solve them where you can. You simply learn how not to carry them around. That's where the art of the practice lies, in living with real problems without making their reality burden the heart. Well, that's her job. Right? Because I'm guessing we all have 
mountains in our lives. We're undergoing the aging process or difficult relationship with someone at work or someone at home or just a mind that won't quit or whatever it is. We can feel overwhelmed. So a lot of our strategies that don't seem to work very well is we try to get rid of these problems, thinking if I get rid of these problems, if I solve these problems, if I fix them, then once and for all, I'll be unburdened. And there's a simile that was used for a long, for many centuries, you know, people being upset, walking around on the earth and cutting their foot because of the sharp stones or sharp sticks or whatever, thorns. And someone has the brilliant idea, well, let's just cover the whole earth and a nice rug. And then we can walk around and we won't have to worry about stubbing our toe or cutting our foot. And somebody with a little bit more wisdom says, well, we could do that. We could cover the entire earth with a nice carpet. Or maybe we should uh, make a pair of shoes, right? And this is the wisdom approach. The ignorant approach, just to be blunt about it, is every single irritation, every single problem, every single thing the mind lusts after, we have this brilliant idea. I'll get rid of that thing that irritates me. I'll get that thing that I really want. I'll make this person the way I want them to be, the way that I won't find irritating. And then I'll be able to relax, right? So we think wrongly that somehow I can make everything bend to my will. I'll just become that one super competent person. That's why we have such a obsessive fascination with superheroes. It's like we think this is the solution to the problem of human suffering. We just need to be so together that we can make everything the way I want it to be. And then, then I'll relax and I'll be happy because it's all done, all taken care of. Well, I'd like to meet the person who's been able to achieve that. I haven't, I don't think anybody has, right? Yet, because we don't know of a better strategy, basically that's what we do. We just try to make everything the way we think it should be and we hope that we'll be happy if we can do that. And what we end up doing is we end up creating a lot of misery for ourselves. So the Buddhist uh, path, the teachings of the Buddha, um, offers a very powerful intervention. It's kind of with that simile, it's building a pair of shoes. And that pair of shoes that allows us to walk around and do what we need to do as a human being is wise understanding. And in this transformation of our view or our understanding, or you could say the development of wisdom, happens naturally with clear seeing, with stabilizing present moment awareness. That's why in Buddhist practice places like Common Ground Meditation Center, we're always talking about stabilizing present moment awareness. Because that's the proximate cause for the deepening of wisdom or the transformation of understanding, the stability of present moment awareness. And then it makes it a little easier to understand the instructions this morning to relax or to invite relaxation, 
to recognize this capacity of our mind, everybody's mind. No one, no one doesn't have this capacity to be aware, but it needs to be recognized and then it needs to be kept in mind. And the last step is the most subtle. It's basically borrowing the, Bo the Buddha's view as some information. Hey, you know what? This is a natural process. Whatever my mind is knowing, it's just unfolding lawfully. One of the places I found uh, just this wisdom intervention, this intervention of wise view, uh, nicely explained was <clears throat> Thich Nhat Hanh in one of his earlier books a long time ago. He's this wonderful Vietnamese Buddhist monk who died a couple of months ago. One of the things I linked to in the Sunday resources is a wonderful 30-minute video that some of his uh, followers created um, called A Cloud Never Dies. And I really recommend it. You're just, it's a biography of Thich Nhat Hanh and it's been making the rounds at Kamagam Meditation Center. And I think we'll put it in the weekly email, but it's linked in the Sunday resources. Don't listen to it now, but you can watch it at your leisure later. And it's very sweet and just gives you a sense of somebody um, with some deep instincts and uh, traction to the Buddhist teachings, but raised in a really terrible time, you know, growing up in Vietnam and being part of the war that maybe you don't know started basically in the, well, it was occupied during World War II and then the struggle really began in the 1950s and continued until through the 70s. So, you know, or many of you know how much suffering and he was, of course, right in the middle of all that. And the video just sort of captures that and captures the wisdom that allowed him to be right in the middle of it in, in, in a very engaged way. Because we can have this wrong idea that to do the practice, we need to be away from it all. It's true. We do need to be away from it for periods of time to develop the wisdom. But then the wisdom gets further deepened and refined when we go back into our duties and responsibilities. So in a way, that's the best way to understand a, a useful life. In the beginning of our practice, sure, it's more useful to have more simple conditions, less stressful times. We, we wouldn't choose to grow up in a war zone, right? But ideally, with the development of practice, we can show up to whatever we need to show up to. That's the whole point. That's why the Buddha refers to the insights, the understanding that comes from practice as unconditioned, meaning the freedom, the spaciousness, the balance, the nimbleness, the compassion isn't dependent on having really nice circumstances. That balance, that compassion, that wisdom holds up even when our circumstances, what's going on around us is really terrible, as it often is in our world. And in one of these earlier books by Thich Nhat Hanh, Transformation and Healing, where he is writing about um, this very important teaching from the Buddha on mindfulness of breathing, which is really a complete map. It's not just about being with breath. It's really about developing insight. Um, 
And at the beginning of that book, Thich Nhat Hanh just offers these five principles of mindful awareness, of awareness practice. And the first one, <clears throat> excuse me, is all dharmas are mind. And that can sound a little strange or philosophical. All dharmas are mind. So the word dharma, you hear a lot. Sometimes you hear it as dhamma. That's the Pali version. And then it's pronounced dharma in Sanskrit. And Sanskrit and Pali are two of the ancient languages of India. Pali is the language spoken around the time of the Buddha. And then later Buddhist traditions used a, a slightly different language to record their teachings in Sanskrit. But the early Buddhist tradition that Kamen Gran is part of, we use the Pali language. But anyway, Thich Nhat Hanh from Vietnam uses the Sanskrit version, all dharmas are mind. And the word dharma sometimes means the way it is. Sometimes we translate that word <clears throat> to mean um, the teachings of the Buddha. But here the word dharma or dhamma means phenomena, you know, experiences that are being known. All experiences, all phenomena are mind. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't an external reality. It just means to suspend the need to project that idea. Like when I see your little pictures on my computer screen or I hear my voice or sense the room around me or feel my body sitting, these are experiences that are being known where? They're being known in the mind. So we say in early Buddhism, especially, we say that each moment of experience is a moment of mind. Things are always known here and now in the mind. One moment at a time, they're being known here. So we're always, in a sense, knowing mind. We're, whatever we're knowing is being known in the mind. When you reflect on this a little, at least intellectually, you'll get this is clearly the case. We only know what we know in the mind. I was standing outside early morning here at the retreat center. It's a very beautiful day here in western Wisconsin and the first really clear day in a while. And just as the light was coming up quite early and looking at the hillside and the open field, and I was contemplating all dhammas are mind, all dharmas are mind. And like the mind was interpreting this visual experience as like, this is beautiful. The colors, the one cloud, the moon setting, this is beautiful. But that beauty, whatever that is, that experience, that visual experience, it's something being known here in the mind. All dhammas are mind. We are living a life of mind. Our whole life, all the sublime experience, all the really difficult experience has been a moment of mind, something being known here and now in the mind. Even embodiment, even experiencing the body, where is that known? That's known in the mind. 
Now, don't try to draw any conclusions, but more than anything, that first principle that Thich Nhat Hanh is offering, it kind of breaks a spell, right? We think we're actually living in this external world. I'm not saying we're not. I'm just saying that actually the experience we're knowing right now is something being known in the mind. And you can check. This is being known here. That's the first principle. The second principle that Thich Nhat Hanh offers goes like this. To observe is to be one with the object of observation. And you'll see, like in your meditation practice, your mindfulness practice, whenever you have an agenda, whenever we have an expectation, whenever there's a sense of an observer, the knowing is already distorted because it's not really the case that there's somebody witnessing or somebody observing. There is the case of something being known. That's how we talk about a moment of experience. Something is being known. But we can't actually separate the observing from what's observed. Try it right now. Just touch your hand on something. Right? Now, clearly the mind can repeat the phrase, my, you know, mind is knowing this touch of my hand. But when we just turn, tune in to the actual experience of touch, there's an experience being known, but we can't distinguish the observing from what is observed. That quality of warmth or hardness or softness or whatever that touching is like for us. We have a very compelling story, especially when we start our meditation practice. Oh, I get what the Buddha is telling me to do. He wants me to become this super duper observer of experience. You know, the, the all time best witnesser. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to become the best. I'm going to build myself the perfect platform sitting slightly above my experience. And I'm going to stand there or maybe I'll get a really comfortable chair so I can be relaxed. And I'm just going to witness whatever comes and goes. But just that idea, as subtle as you might make it, that idea of me sitting in my observation platform, knowing my experience, is... <laughs> just a big kind of provocative. It's an abomination because it's a construction. And it because the mind is constructing something extra and not actual, reality is affected. Our experience of the present moment is affected. So you might, I might use the sense of being the observer because it's it's more palatable to our ego when we're learning to practice, to imagine that, okay, I'll stop being this neurotic person running around with my head cut off, doing this, chasing my likes and dislikes, and instead I'm going to become this elegant observer of my experience. It's, we all do that, right? We construct the idea of being an observer. It's a can be, for many of us, a useful way into the practice, but it isn't the end of the practice. Because when, we, when we're feeling more settled, 
more stability of present moment awareness, we'll notice that, like, the, like Thich Nhat Hanh says here, to observe is to be one with the object of observation. So when I say something is being known, you, people always will ask, well, why do you put it in the passive voice? Why do you say, why don't you say, I'm knowing something? Why do you say something is being known? Because I'm creating, I'm sort of setting up this experience where there is the experience of whatever it is being known. And I could highlight that it's being known or I could highlight what is being known. But I can't actually separate those two things. And I don't have to. It would be an unnecessary distortion, an unnecessary tension. And there's a, one of the characteristics of samadhi. Some of you know that word samadhi, that unification or stability of awareness. The coming together, the gathering, unifying of the energies of the mind, the heart, around being present. That's called wise samadhi. So concentration or that um, balanced presence in the service of seeing things as they are. So samadhi. That's what we mean by samadhi or stability of present moment awareness is usually how I translate it. And when you have that stability of awareness, <clears throat> you'll sense that almost like a visceral sense of wholeness or one's experience not being fragmented, not being dualistic, me observing that experience over there. And that's a useful barometer for sensing how well the practice is going. Is there that wholeness, that stability of presence that has that non-fragmented, not divided quality to it. Oh, good, I'm getting some momentum in my practice. And in those other moments, when it feels like there's a me struggling to be the observer, then we know that there's not that much momentum yet. I'm still kind of building momentum like developing my valuing of being present, being mindfully aware, and teasing out all the ways we over-effort and all the ways we under-effort, right? Because we can become negligent and then we're just spaced out thinking the thoughts we normally think. That's not mindfulness. But we can also over-effort and kind of make it more of a chore than it is. That's why that instruction I gave this morning was to not to do awareness, but to recognize present moment awareness, that it's here, it's now. Without you or me doing it, isn't that true right now? Check. Isn't this capacity of the mind, the heart, this capacity to recognize that this is being known? It's already here, isn't it? I can recognize that seeing is being seen or hearing is being heard. Feeling the body sitting is being felt. So the first uh, principle from Thich Nhat Hanh, all dharmas are mine, thinks, uh, 
to whoever Jessica is putting that into the chat. The second one, and by the way, I created a little cheat sheet for you of these five principles, and that's in the Sunday um, resources too, with a few notes that I wrote under each one. And the second is to observe, is to be one with the object of concentration, which means, oh, I've got some momentum. The experience is starting to feel whole or not divided, not fragmented. Okay, good. Observa uh, observing and what's being observed can't really be teased apart. The third is true mind and deluded mind or one. And uh, in later Buddhist traditions, they made a big deal out of samsara and nirvana or the same thing. Or not the same thing, but they share the same space, let's say. And, it, you know, it's... The, the Dharma point, I think, is really useful. And it relates to what I was just saying. Like the teaching point is be careful with dualities. They don't really support practice, good and bad, me and you, this and that. So it relates to the second principle that to observe is to be one with the object of observation. True mind and deluded mind are one. So this is really interesting, like when we get some momentum, some continuity of present moment awareness, you'll even see like a whole pattern in the mind to be deluded, like to fall into some worry or some problem solving, some planning mind, some doubt. But there's still some stability of present moment awareness. And it sees like this cloud, this misty cloud descending on the mind because that habit to be lost in planning or to be fantasizing in this way or that way or worrying in any way that we worry. You know, that those tendencies of the mind, they're there even with stability of awareness. So they're going to show up. And then we can really see that how um, the two, how that wisdom, the clarity and the delusion, they're kind of sharing the same space. And the more we get this third principle, true mind and deluded mind are one, like one of the telltale signs that the wisdom is understanding the point that Thich Nhat Hanh is making is we're less and less afraid of distraction and delusion. Because we know it's, it's an obscuration, it's a, you know, it's a mist, but it isn't me or mine. I got to take responsibility. I got to learn to be skillful with these patterns, these deluding, confusing, obscuring patterns that are built in. They're not personal, these patterns, but they're there. They got set in motion maybe because of cultural conditioning, maybe the conditioning from my parents or who knows, maybe just comes with the territory of being an animal, being a mammal sort of our genetic <clears throat> conditioning. Who knows, maybe even past lives. But we know that there are these tendencies. And I don't actually need to know where they came from because I feel them, I see them. 
that's enough just to see how they show up and how they can obscure that clarity, that balance, that understanding. And then for periods of time, we can get lost. But whenever wisdom has enough clarity to know, I'm deluded, <laughs> I'm lost in thought, I'm obsessing about this, right? So there's some clarity. Wisdom doesn't have to freak out because it, it knows the essence of any delusion is emptiness. That the delusion isn't who we are. It doesn't mean it, it's skillful and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't relate to it skillfully because delusions can be quite destructive. If I think I'm the worst person on the planet or I think I'm the best per person on the planet, it's going to have real implications. Maybe for some of you too who have to put up with me. So delusions have real consequences in our world. We want to take responsibility for teasing them out of the heart and mind. But we don't have to take them personally. And this goes to that story about mountains are only heavy if we try to lift them. Right? These um, deluded states of mind, the defilements, are only heavy if we try to lift them, if we take them personally. This is from one of my teachers, Saido Uteshaniya from his booklet, Dhamma Everywhere, which you can get for free online, Dhamma Everywhere, by Sayada Utejaniya. He said, Because the mind is covered by the defilements, we are unable to see Dhamma, or to understand nature as it is. Whatever is happening in the present moment is nature, is Dhamma. Even defilements, these torments of the mind, become Dhamma, become nature. Nature is arising, knowing is arising, awareness is arising, object in mind, object in mind, right? Or as I sometimes say, something is being known, something is being known. And he continues, in nature, there is nobody there. Nature is not us, not them, not other. Nature is just nature. Dhamma is ever-present and there is Dhamma talk everywhere. Nature is always teaching us Dhamma, but we are unable to hear. If we can see nature as it really is, the mind is free. That's it. If we can see nature as it really is, the mind is free. So we're aligning in a way, we're using the stability of present moment awareness to align with nature. But our desires, they're so com compelling. They're so seductive. They seem so much like I have this desire. It's really shocking when we realize how empty craving is. So now here's the fourth principle. Mindfulness is the way of no conflict. Mindfulness is the way of no conflict. In other, way, in other words, we could say mindfulness, mindful awareness has the flavor of kindness and love and goodness. And this we can check out. And it's also a useful barometer. Like when you feel like you have some stability of present moment awareness and you still hate yourself or hate the world or hate your experience, 
you may not have that much momentum yet <laughs> in your practice. You may be sort of thinking that you're, you know, being present, but you're missing, you know, the huge thing in the room, which is aversion. Oh, aversion is being known. Aversion is like this. Oh, that's good to see. Aversion's like this. And now we're back on track when we recognize the aversion. Mindfulness is the way of no conflict. Because as long as I have an, an agenda, I'm not, the awareness isn't balanced. It's distorting the way it is in the moment. To really realize the way it is, the mind has to, in a sense, abide in the knowing. Because when we're abiding or trusting the knowing, the awareness, then there's no agenda, and that mind sees things as they are. And I love the last point that Thich Nhat Hanh has here. He says, observation, not indoctrination. Right, because even hearing any of these first four points, we could want to write them down. I'm going to paint them on my wall in my place where I meditate, and I'm going to bow down to these four points. And then he says, observation, not indoctrination. It's not about believing that this is true. Like if we if we want to be devoted, if we want to bow down to something, we should bow down to how valuable mindful awareness is. The stability of present moment awareness is the most important thing. Now, I know some of you have children and you think, no, I think raising my kids more important. But I think I could make a pretty good argument that you're not going to do a good job raising your kids unless you value being mindfully aware. You definitely don't want to do it on autopilot. <laughs> you know, raising our kids based on our cultural conditioning Right? What really helps is actually to be radically present as you navigate all these twists and turns, whether you're raising kids or trying to be a good partner or trying to make the world a, a wiser, kinder place. So we'll probably come back to this next week, um, but I just wanted you to have these five principles from our beloved Thich Nhat Hanh, who passed away not too long ago. And I encourage you again to watch that video when you have some time. Read that article about mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them, especially for those who are, um, yeah, have a little bit more tolerance for Buddhist psychology. It's a really good article. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.